Hamlet is Hamlet. Is Hamlet. Is Hamlet. I that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. Or that el todo poderoso had not fixed his cannon contra suicidio. Ay, Dios. Dios. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. For generations, theater artists have been shaping and changing Shakespeare to fit the times. When they do, the best ones add specific textures of place and culture or fluidity with language that can take centuries-old work and make it brand new. Seattle Shakespeare Company is presenting one of those works as we're recording this, a Salvadoran-American adaptation of Hamlet called House of Sueños by 28-year-old playwright Meme Garcia. Because of the times we're all living in, the play is being released as a podcast, presented in the style of Meme's favorite horror podcasts, Lore and the Horror of Dolores Roach. House of Sueños, like its playwright, exists in English, modern and Shakespearean, and in Spanish. It hits many of the most popular Hamlet high points, but also has a unique 21st century freshness that makes this work very much its own thing. Meme Garcia joined us to talk about the work and its creation from their home in Ashland, Oregon. We call this podcast, What Dreams May Come. Meme Garcia is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. So this started as a solo show, right? You going through things in an attic and that stir up memories from your own, um, your actual childhood. So how much of that original show involved language and themes from Hamlet? Um, The original one that I did, it didn't take place in an attic. It took place in a sea cave, if that is, (laughs) if you can believe that. Um... (laughs) Uh, and it was really wet. I had all these buckets. It was it was a concept. Um, and then it actually, the second version took place in a basement. My grandparents had just passed away. And they had one of these basements that was like, like you were walking into an antique mall. Um, and so it was quite haunted. So the set, it was, this is so macabre. I can't believe I'm, I'm admitting to this. But <laughs> we used a lot of stuff from my grandparents' basement uh, before the estate sale as like set dressing for wow for so show. truly haunting for you <laughs> quite haunting and um and text uh hamlet or shakespeare has always been a part of it originally there was like 12 different shakespeare plays in it and um when i was like well i don't need to live the arc of all these characters i could just live the arc of one play we decided that hamlet was the best option for that after he left to smoke i saw a figure like him and i swear to whatever god there is that i believe it was luis our papi did you not speak to him rena i tried but answer made he none he just started telling the story from when we were little and as soon as i tried to speak he had vanished from my sight you're lying why would i lie about this I would you had been there, it would have much amazed you. Very like. And why Hamlet? What did that play mean to you throughout your life? It was the very first play I ever did when I was 12. I played Hamlet in this, like, summer camp 
version of it. Cool, um, enlightened camp. <laughs> very, very. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to play Hamlet. I was, uh, I think I was Bernardo. And then the person who was playing Hamlet dropped out. And I was the only person with a part small enough that they could replace it. Um, <laughs> well, excellent. I know. But it was also the uh, my, my Salvadoran dad, Luis, he had a copy of Hamlet in Spanish. And I remember uh, him reading it to me as a kid. Huh, of your dad. And your mm-hmm. your mom did remarry, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So w- tell us about that part of your life and how that you folded that in. It's hard for her. And it's not hard for us. Feels like just yesterday he disappeared. It's been five years, and he didn't disappear. He abandoned us. <laughs> Whatever helps you sleep at night. Maybe you'll say it is but my fantasy and will not let belief take hold of you, but I know you're haunted by the same face. El mismo hombre. He's out there, Amelia. He's not coming back. What did Bobby always say? If you're hungover, drink more. So my mom remarried her high school her college high school sweetheart when I was I must have been in seventh grade. And uh and he had a he has a daughter uh, who became my stepsister and now is my sister. And she was very much um, not enthusiastic about the wedding. And so I just have all these memories of just the two of us get, getting ready for my parents' wedding. And she's like, just so. Oh, wait. Donde puede estar? Remember that suit she made me wear for the funeral? The all black one? Si, pues. You can't wear that. Y por qué no? It's a great fit. It's a wedding. It's that, or ripped skinny jeans and converse. Uh-huh. Here we go. The two sisters stand in front of a mirror in the attic, both of them holding the costumes they'll have to wear for the wedding tomorrow. Okay, now I can see where it all comes together, how you drew on your experience from this wedding and your your stepsister to create the sisters' characters in this mm-hmm. radio drama, mm-hmm. Rena and her younger sister, Amelia. And and in the radio play, Rena is the, the Hamlet figure, and, and Amelia is kind of the Ophelia slash Horatio figure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So... If your stepsister was Hamlet-like and hated your parents' marriage, were you Ophelia? (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's, I didn't, I really didn't distance myself that much from the play. My real name is Amelia. And I would say yes. I I was probably more of a Horatio Ophelia type. We had a lot of struggles in my family with mental health challenges and my mental health challenges. It's not that they were pushed aside or any less important. It's just that my other people in my family required an immense amount of care. And I think that now that I look back, I'm like, wow, that really affected me. <laughs> oh, I can, I can imagine. I mean, well, mental illness is so often the subtext of Hamlet productions, but your production puts it right in the forefront. And something we know now in the 21st century that really comes across in your production is the question of the genetic nature of mental illness, how it's passed down in a family. And is that what you struggled with in your in both writing this but also in your life? Yes. My Salvadoran dad, Luis is his name, my papi, he has a lot of PTSD. And when I looked into the eyes of our American friends... I didn't see the bullets they provided, or the guns they made, or the soldiers they trained who tortured me. He has um, a lot of experience with the Salvadoran Civil War, 
And so I grew up in all my tios, my whole Salvadoran family has it, right? I mean, it's a huge handprint on our history. Did they see my children? Esta casa? Did they see the way you and your sister would make me laugh? The Christmases, Halloweens, Valentine's Days, or cumpleaños? No. I'd given up everything to become nothing. And something that I've kind of grown up is I'm like, well, what does that intergenerational trauma look like? What does it feel like? Um, and for me, a lot of it feels like isolation and alone because I didn't grow up in a huge Salvadoran American community. But I also feel it kind of in my bones and in my blood. And I forget that intergenerational trauma and legacy burden actually shows up physically like in our body. Um, and I see it manifesting in all different types of ways, right? I see it in my inability to trust, in paranoia, in particularly struggling with like trusting any type of institution. And I also feel it kind of in this idea that, you know, both my parents were revolutionaries and I am an artist. So part of me is like, what kind of collective liberation am I fighting for? How am I actively trying to make the world a better place? And that's a lot of pressure to place on yourself. Yeah, and it gives such explosive power to the idea of Hamlet's ghost. So how did you think about portraying Hamlet's ghost, understanding Hamlet's ghost in this production? I, to preface this, my collaborator Wiley and I, we had always asked ourselves this question, like, have we ever seen a production of Hamlet where the ghost is actually scary? And my answer is no. <laughs> I don't think I I've have. Never. <laughs> yeah, like, but I'm sure when it came out, it was just horrifying, right? Like the very first production you saw sure. of Hamlet must have been just incredible, I think, and that awe-inspiring, truly, and very terrifying. And I love horror. So I was like, I want to make the ghost in our show, the ghost of Papi, terrifying. Because if anyone who's experienced depression or anxiety or any type of suicide ideation knows that it is, it's kind of like a constant presence that is drives a lot of your day. And it kind of feels and it tastes like fear, in my opinion. Mm. And so then I was looking at this Hamlet ghost scene and he's the ghost of Hamlet's father is so disappointed in him. You know, he's like, he starts off, he's like, I find the act. Don't pity me. You know, like just the lines that he has at the beginning. And Hamlet's like, what can I do? How can I be present for you? And he's like, God, this isn't enough. <laughs> you look good, my little prince. Papi. What did I always say, Rina? Cuando te vas, te quedas. You didn't think I'd really leave you, did you? Nothing would keep me from you. Salvo mi muerte. Salvo mi muerte. You're dead? No tenemos mucho tiempo. Tu hermana es demasiado débil. She can't hold off death for long. Mi pobre papi. Don't pity me. Listen for once in your life. And so then I mirrored it with, there was this production apparently, I think it was with Jonathan Price at the RSC, where Price played it as if the ghost had possessed him. And I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by possession. And I was like, what is it if the ghost of Papi in this play possesses the youngest daughter and she becomes like a conduit for his spirit in a way that I become a conduit for my Papi's trauma? Hmm. I do want to ask you about language. The play moves in and out of modern English and Spanish and slang and then 
quotes from Shakespeare pretty directly or paraphrased. So how do you decide when to drop in the Shakespeare? Because sometimes it's just a line in the middle of just a contemporary uh, monologue, like when the stepfather is talking to Amelia about Rena's mental illness. Something you have seen of Rena's transformation, if that's what we want to call it, what it should be more than Poppy's absence that thus hath put her so much from the understanding of herself, I cannot dream of. I know your mother will want you from this time forth to be something scanter of your presence, but I know that your sister, well, she's healing and we got to put her on a tighter leash, so to speak. I wish there was so a really um, intelligent so and poetic response to this other than when I feel like it. <laughs> I'm like, I was like really trying to rag my brain. I was like, okay, come on, you're a playwright. Like you got to, everything has a reason. And, you know, I don't necessarily, if I'm speaking, I modeled it a lot off of um, how I go in and out of Spanish. So in one moment, I'll go from speaking English to hablando español, and it's as smooth as that. And so part of me was like, how can I mimic that experience with Shakespeare? Um, and so I so guess were that's... you modeling it on kind of the musical theater idea? Good musical theater where people just seem to flow, like the, when the occasion calls for song, yes. they suddenly go from speaking to singing? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's a great way to describe it. Also, code switching, I think, is another good way to describe it. But um, well, sure. definitely, like, they're like, yes, I can't express what I have to say with my words, so I'm going to burst into song. And I guess in this play, they don't burst into song. They burst into Shakespeare. So maybe your answer is going to be the same for this question, but what would make you rewrite Shakespeare? You know, what would make you like a rewritten line of Shakespeare better than the original line? On what basis would you decide that? Like relevancy or accessibility? Accessibility has a lot to do with it. I think also part of me is just like, how does this line sit in my actor's mouth? I have always found Shakespeare to be one of the most accessible playwrights in the sense that he is free, but I've also found him to be inaccessible in that I don't understand what's going on probably 50% of the time. Um, and so I was just like, how can I take that 50% of the time that I don't know what he's saying and bring myself, meet him there? To die, to sleep, morir, dormir, to die, to sleep, perchance, to dream. Hey, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, que sueños podrán llegar? When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. Allí está el respeto that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrongs, those f***ed up rides in the back of an ambulance, heartbreak that feels like a chainsaw. La tardanza de la justicia, las preguntas y las miradas, the forgetting and remembering the distant memories of This is for us. This is by us. <laughs> I'm bringing, I'm forcibly bringing him to me in a way. Uh, so it's about the right to be there too. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't it so you can see yourself in Shakespeare in the language and also in the, in the world of Shakespeare? Yeah. And it's, it's hard because I have always seen myself in Shakespeare. There has never been a point in my life that I don't see clearly where I belong. But what I've realized is that it's the rest of the world that hasn't made that connection. Mm. Particularly like 
when I think about House of Sueños, I'm like, this is a Salvadoran American play. And I, and I see that relationship between Hamlet and Central American identity so clearly. But I don't think the rest of the world does, which is a surprise to me. So how can I write a play or create a world that allows and introduces other people to that same concept that I have? My stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. And like the mother I am, I am bent up and kept secrets and promises I made a lifetime ago. Is that what you said to Poppy? I couldn't say anything. The truth and the lie sit heavy on my tongue, and I can almost see myself through her eyes. These cursed hands are stained thick with her Poppy's blood. And getting down to the level of rhythm, there's something really interesting going on in the language. There is some iambic pentameter, but a lot of it isn't quite iambic. So what what rhythms were you playing with? I have never... I, so first and foremost, I'm an actor. And I was always confused by iambic pentameter until I did a project in grad school where we wrapped it. We dropped one of the feet, one of the iams, and put it into 4-4. And I started to realize that I was like, whoa, you can really tell a lot when you mess with rhythm in Shakespeare where you take it out of what is kind of foreign and you place it into the home experience, like rap or hip hop. So I started to kind of be like, well, how can I, how can I use the rhythm of Shakespeare to A, tell my actors like what is supposed to be going on, but B, also make it a little bit easier for the audience to understand like what someone's feeling and also just continue to be like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) I'm like, let's just throw something at a wall and see if it works. And let's flow. Um, because it Let's seems flow. like Spanish, it fits, the 4-4 four, four rhythm sp- fits Spanish in a different way than, than English. I mean, Spanish has different stresses than English, right? Much different stresses, yeah. And I think when I did try to fit it so that it was all an iambic pentameter, right, I was like, okay, I want to make it work. If I have half the line in English, half the line in Spanish, I want it to fit. It really didn't flow. And so then I was like, okay, let's just forget about it, the rhythm, and not try to make it an Alexandrine or uh, iambic pentameter or whatever. We're just going to make it sound like the music I grew up with, which is reggaeton. So, like, what would Bad Bunny do is always what happens. <laughs> WBBD. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, the Spanish, there is a lot of Spanish in, in this um, radio drama, and I, you know, I live in Southern California, so I, I understand a, a bit of Spanish, but some of it I didn't at all. And it was kind of like, I'm okay. I'm just going with this. It sounds great. I love the rhythms. Uh, maybe I just don't have to understand everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that how did you think about that? How do you decide when to use Spanish? And how does it's kind of an interesting parallel with the accessibility of Shakespeare to everyone, or the express, accessibility of your Spanish to your listeners? Well, I didn't grow up. English was not my first language, and that was an incredibly difficult process for me learning English. And sometimes I think when I go see a Shakespeare play like so many other people, I'm like, I have no idea what these people are saying, but I'm here and I'm present and I'm engaged. And I think about that sometimes with um, when you hear another language and I'm like, okay, it might be kind of scary at first not to know what people are saying, but at the same time, there's kind of a beauty in opening yourself up and how that is mirrored with the experience of seeing Shakespeare. I also say in the, in the 
notes on language at the beginning, I say that Spanish is the language of immediate secrets. I want uh, monolingual English speakers to feel like they are listening to a secret that isn't necessarily being given to them. As soon as she's gone, the attic begins to move and machinate, breath-pumping life into its veins. Twinkle lights that were once hidden blink slowly to life, and a sweet smell, como menta y hibisco, lingers. The attic is happy for the first time in a long time, y lo puede sentir. Como magia, drop cloths the covered old furniture pull themselves into the air to make a beautiful tent in late summer. Chairs rearrange themselves to make room for guests who are made out of old clothes. It's like something that I've carried with me for many, many years, um, is being able to find someone. I'm like, cool, you speak Spanish, we can connect. And I know that speaking Spanish is not necessarily a representation of culture, but so often when I do speak Spanish with someone, it is with another Latinx person or another Latina person. And I'm like, I need to just, I guess code switch really is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. And I need to just be real for a second in a way that I feel like I'm not real in English sometimes. And for, for you with a Salvadoran background, I mean, the Spanish was the language of the colonizer, right? Yes, yeah. So I think that's another thing that's so hard is that this... For many, many Latina and Latinx folks who don't grow up speaking Spanish, right? That there's like a double great, if that makes sense. There's a great that we're not Latina enough or not Latinx enough, but then there's a great that's like, but it's the colonized, it's a colonizer's language. It's not my language. In El Salvador, the indigenous population, because of centuries of genocide and then because of the Civil War, the population, the indigenous population is quite small. And so only a fraction of people actually speak Nahuatl, one of the many indigenous languages, um, compared to in Guatemala, which is I think like a 36% population of indigenous folks. Um, they speak like 40 different indigenous languages there. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's hard because people associate Latinidad with Spanish. And so often I'm like, it is a portion, I suppose, of our culture, but not all of it. Well, so many layers. And on top of that, you have some Shakespeare in Spanish. Angeles y ministros de la gracia, defiéndenos. Seas espíritu de salvación o duende condenado. Traigas contigo aires de cielo o ráfagas de infierno. Sean tus intenciones perversas o caritativas. That's really interesting to hear. You have the angels and ministers of grace defend us speech. How do you, when do you decide we're just going to do some Shakespeare in Spanish? So I'll look at a combination of texts, different translations of Hamlet into Spanish. So often these translations are from Spain. So they are uh, Castilian Spanish and they use vosotros. I find them to be quite tiring. And I will work with my actor, Caro Zeller, who plays Rina, who's incredible. Um, and I'll be like, okay, what is this straight up old text? What does it sound like in your voice? And we'll kind of play with it. And I'll be like, Mm-mm, okay, this doesn't sound right. So I, I then I then readapt it to make it heightened Latin American Spanish. I don't have a good feeling about this. Where has he been all these years? Why is he showing up now? Sis, please stop. Why stop? Que temores debo tener? 
I do not set my life at a pin's fee and for my soul. ¿Qué le puede hacer siendo como él mismo cosa inmortal? And this is a really charged moment, too, this speech, you know, that moment of conjuring. Right? And we're dealing with a ghost here, and the stakes are high. It's about her relationship to her father. ¿A dónde estás? Aquí estamos. Amelia begins to fight off an invisible force. She falls to the ground and begins to crawl towards Rena, reaching out for help. My fate cries out and makes each petty artery in this body as hardy as a lion's roar. Still, I am called. Unhand me, sister! Por los cielos! Convertir espectro al que me sujete. Come in! Come in! How can we meet this um, old vosotros or the Spanish vosotros with contemporary Latin American Spanish? On another tack, something I really love is that the stage directions in this radio drama are a character. The stage yes. directions are the attic. So where did the idea come from? Uh, or come to you to write them that way? I have my stage directions always. I said, I have two plays that I've written in my life. So, but in those two plays that I've written, they've always been quite poetic. Um, primarily because one day I hope that they're on stage and I really want to give designers kind of free reign to really interpret that. And I'm very much inspired by the stage directions of Chuck Mee, of Naomi Azuka. And I was like, yeah, they are poetry. And then I started listening to um, The Public's Richard II and with Lupita Nyong'o playing the, was the narrator. And I was so inspired by that. I was moved by having someone who is such an incredibly talented actor playing the narrator and to infuse myself into this character. If I get a, a place as a playwright in the story, it's here. Like most haunted things, this attic won't stay still for long. It's always churning, always working. And somewhere in the distance, behind some boxes, you can almost make out a sigh or a breath on the wind, promising who's there. someone looking in from the outside, moving these characters around. And I have to be present to the trauma that these characters are going to experience. And I have to give them little respites or I have to acknowledge the pain that they're going through. So that's how I wrote The Attic, with a lot of love. Um, wow, you, that, that puts you right. It's as if you're em encompassing all of the characters and all the actions. They're inside of you. Yes. <laughs> I mean, after I finished writing this play, it was, ex I was, I think I slept for probably like at least 20 hours. It was, <laughs> and like I just, gave birth. <laughs> it, it feels like I just carved a, a chunk of myself out to share with the world. And I think that people, when they hear it, people who don't know me, obviously, maybe not, maybe they don't experience this, but I think for the people that know me, they're like, wow, that's what it's like inside your head. And I'm like, yes, this is what it's like inside my brain all the time. It's kind of scary. Mm. 
Um, it's well, it's really interesting. I mean, another this is kind of a small point, but it's a real window into your brain. I think is that um, I read the script because you hadn't finished uh, your production team hadn't finished putting them together yet before we did this interview. So when you look at the script on the page. It, it's almost like reading a novel because the stage directions are so po- poetic. And then there's these really um, interesting idiosyncrasies in your the actual words on the page, like the word and is almost always just the letter N. And sometimes the first words of sentences are capitalized and sometimes they're not. So sometimes they're like a poem, sometimes mm-hmm. not. But so why do you even... The audience will never see your scripts, so why do they look like that? <laughs> I think definitely, so like I said before, I'm an actor before I'm anything else. When I went to uh, acting conservatory, one of the things we always did was we would retype our scripts up and we would get rid of all the ands, particularly in Shakespeare. Because you wouldn't say like fish and chips, right? You'd say fish and chips. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I think that lives in this play too. And also, I love how Shakespeare, because of the iambic pentameter, he puts it in your body and he allows it to be extemporaneous. And I was like, how can I mimic that, right? How do I write my extemporaneous speech? And so often, like when I'm writing text messages, I don't write out blocks of text. I'll write out little sentences. They'll be like, if you get a text from me and I'm really feeling strong about something, it'll be 50 text messages, all one lines because that's how I think extemporaneously. So I wanted to kind of mimic that. And I also wanted the the characters, uh, the actors who are playing Rina and Amelia to know that like, this isn't Shakespeare. Like this is just us. Um, this is how you text. This is how you talk. This is how you tell somebody you love them. It's it's our, our language and it doesn't exist in um, capital letters. It doesn't exist in lots of punctuation. It exists in a much more m- messy place. But there have been lots of other authors who have used kind of who have distanced themselves from capitalization, from grammar. I mean, I can think of bell hooks really being kind of one of the main ones. Um, because also part of me is continuously frustrated with how my grammar and my language has been policed by primarily white institutions online as not sounding academic enough. Mm. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm an academic. I'm just not an academic in the way that you see academics because you've never allowed us into your space like this before. Uh, so it's a political statement, really, even though no one's eyes, except maybe your actors, except definitely mm-hmm. your actors are going to see this. You know, the audience isn't going to see this, but it sounds like you're making a political statement for yourself and for them. Yes, I am. One day, you know, maybe it'll be, who knows, maybe it'll be published and there'll be some queer little Salvadoran kid reading it and they'll see like, oh, they talk like me. This playwright is writing how I talk. Mm. And I think that's one of my my dreams. (laughs) Well, that makes me think that you didn't really have any trepidation going into adapting Shakespeare, uh, which is what you're doing in this radio drama. But we've had so many guests on this show who have either adapted Shakespeare in plays or in, in, into novels. And we always ask them, you know, how do you think about that? Do you, do you struggle with it? You know, how did you think about adapting Shakespeare? Was there any worries about that at all? You know, no, I don't think so. Primarily because every time I perform in a Shakespeare play, I'm making a political statement. Anytime I say his words, I'm making a statement because I can't separate my identity from my body, no matter how many times I try. 
I'm not a neutral space. And I should, and that idea of neutral is in and of itself non-existent. I inhabit a very political, beautiful space. And so, and all of my Shakespeare experience has primarily been with Upstart Crow Collective, with Rosa Josie. Um, it has been doing these, these shows that are, they're about the story, but the bodies you see playing the story make the story better. And so when I sat down to do House of Sueños, it was never, I think, like a fear, like, well, will my writing be as good as Shakespeare? Will I be prolific enough or genius enough? And and I was like, no, <laughs> it doesn't. It's okay. Because also, I think that we tend to deify Shakespeare. Uh, we look at him like a god. And I think he was just a, a man. And... <laughs> we get to treat yeah. him like he's just a man and we get to be like some of your stories are incredibly problematic and if he was alive today and he wrote the misogyny he wrote in hamlet we would be like yo dude are you okay <laughs> and he would be like i'm not okay i need help and we'd be like yes we're getting you the help you need so i'm just like we can treat his works like new plays and throw out what works and keep what doesn't and as deborah warner says throw them up against the wall of our times um and we just get to wrangle with them in a beautiful way um, and collaborate. Well, I love how you wrangled with, with Shakespeare <laughs> in this, and I just wish you all the best and, uh, and good health and take care of yourself. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks so much for talking today. It was a blast. Thank you. <laughs> Playwright Maymay Garcia is a Fulbright scholar with a master's degree in classical acting from the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. As an actor, they've performed with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Upstart Crow Collective, and Seattle Shakespeare Company, among others. Maymay was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. House of Sueños is currently available as a five-part series as part of Seattle Shakespeare Company's Rough Magic podcast. It was written by Maymay Garcia and directed by Wiley Basho Gorn, with sound design by Megan Roach. The play is available through March 17, 2021 at seattleshakespeare.org slash houseofsueños, S-U-E-N-O-S. That's seattleshakespeare.org slash houseofsueños. Our podcast, What Dreams May Come, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquart at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.